I should begin with an apology to people on Zoom. I have gotten out of the habit of um, sending my outline to uh, Stephen and, and Robin for them to put up, um, and I will try to make a point of um, going through it orally um, so that uh, they too can follow the sermon more easily. Um, you should have a handout. It's a six-page stapled dealie that has uh, a translation on the front page. I um, like to go through the, the, the text and reflect decisions um, that I think are, are prudent. It's not authoritative. You'd want to turn to something that our denomination endorses for that, like the ESV. And on the last two, two pages are end notes. So we have a translation, then we have um, an outline, um, as well as some quotes, summary notes, relevant issues, parallel passages. So I begin with some general words. We are still in that interlude between the second and third major speeches of Jesus. The speech on mission in chapter 10 and the parables of Jesus in chapter 13. And I think we're going to save the beginning of the parables until um, the fall term, the beginning of September. And so uh, next week uh, we will finish uh, chapter 12. And then we'll have um, a few, um, a bit of a break from the Gospel of Matthew and start with the parables again in September. And we've noticed that in chapters 11 and 12, Matthew is dealing with a number of controversies, a number of challenges to the Messiahship of Jesus. And that theme today continues, where the Pharisees um, are um, intimidated again by, the, by a miracle that Jesus has uh, performed and they make an accusation that Jesus is performing his miracles by the power of someone they call Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And this actually presents an issue for Jesus and the early church because this was a common refutation that the Jews made of Jesus. And so uh, Jesus and Matthew take a fair bit of time responding to this charge because uh, although on one level it's completely illogical and makes no sense in the case of Jesus, at least theoretically speaking, it's possible. The Old Testament warns of people who might perform miracles, but if they are unorthodox in their theology and they lead people to the worship of other gods, uh, then they are imposters. And so the Pharisees pull this rabbit out of the hat and Jesus responds. And in the midst of this lesson where Jesus refutes the Pharisees for saying that he's casting out demons by the power of Beelzebul, it turns into kind of a moral for us all. And in the last two sections of our passage today, in verses 31 to 32 and in 33 to 37, there is a moral for us as well. And it's a caution about a thing called blaspheming the Holy Spirit. And it's a very serious thing. There is no forgiveness for the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And many Christians have um, worried about whether they have made that transgression, and we are going to, uh, to look at that as we move through. But as is indicated on page two of your handout, I want to begin with a famous quote from C.S. Lewis. And it's one that's often used in apologetics apologetics being um, 
Christians who are interested in defending their faith. C.S. Lewis, as most of you know, was a professor at Oxford, and he wrote the Narnia series, and he was known for his writing style, his sharp wit, um, his intellect, and his uh, coming to faith from uh, the position of an atheist. And here he responds to a claim that you've probably heard from some of your friends. And as I was preparing the sermon this week, I noticed it often said among Jews today that Jesus was um, a wise rabbi. He was a good teacher. And uh, C.S. Lewis will have none of that. He says that um, he couldn't be a, a great moral teacher. Um, that is ruled out. And he says, I quote, and I have it written, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said wouldn't be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on a level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something else. The options are stark. Either Jesus is the son of God, or I suppose another few possibilities that are at least worth considering would be that he's a madman or something worse. Uh, a demon or a devil. And I chose that quote because our passage deals with each of those different options, because there is a claim implicitly on the part of Jesus that he is the Son of God, which Matthew affirms. There's also a reference to being mad, and I'll explain that it's slightly veiled, or else a demon. So we begin our text with um, the translation that's on page one of your handout, and I want to begin with the first paragraph because it describes the incident. There is an incident that led to the Pharisees' accusation. And the incident is a little bit surprising because it differs from that which is found in the Gospel of Mark. According to Matthew, then came to him a demon-possessed man who was blind and dumb. And he healed him such that the dumb man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were going berserk and kept saying, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? But overhearing, the Pharisees said, this casts out demons by none other than Beelzebul, ruler of demons. So this is what I've called in the outline, the incident. But actually there are three incidents. There's a healing by Jesus, which is quite remarkable. There is a man who is both blind and dumb, and we are told that he was also demon-possessed, and that perhaps accounts for his blindness and his dumbness in this instance. The Gospels are normally aware of and make a sharp distinction between healings and demon possession. But a few times, particularly in the case of someone who is dumb, unable to speak, that person um, was thought to be and was understood rightly to be in these cases demon possessed. So Jesus heals the man such that he spoke and he saw. So the first incident is a healing by Jesus. And the second incident is madness. This isn't evident in your ESV, but the translation that I've given on the front page reflects it. All the crowds were going berserk and kept saying, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? The word berserk uh, is um, at the very least astonishment. But here's the significant point. It's the same word 
that the family of Jesus used of Jesus to describe him as being out of his mind. In Mark's gospel, which you can see in the gospel parallels that I have on the, um, at the end of the outline, uh, parallel passages, it's on page one, two, three, four. Uh, parallel passages number one, Mark's account of the same from which Matthew likely drew. This part Matthew doesn't include, and Matthew was aware of it on the assumption, as most scholars believe, that Matthew had access to Mark. So verse 3 of chapter 20, then he, that is Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard of it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he, that is Jesus, is out of his mind. Uh, the family were concerned for the mental health of Jesus um, because obviously he was extraordinary. People by the thousands were coming around him, and Jesus seemed to have an inexhaustible sense amount of patience for them, and he healed them. And the family wondered whether he was in his right mind. So what is my point? My point is this, is that in Matthew's case, he's admitting that someone has gone mad. But here... Although he knows the story of the family of Jesus saying that Jesus is mad, Matthew says, well, really, Jesus wasn't mad implicitly, but if you want to know who was going mad, it was the crowds when they saw what Jesus did. Here Jesus comes, and he heals a man who is both dumb and blind, and immediately before their eyes, they see this man seeing and speaking. And the people were just at their wits' end because of this. This has never happened uh, to this extent for many hundreds of years, not since the days of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and even uh, more dramatically. So they kept on saying, this couldn't be the son of David, could it? Is the Messiah really here? It's too good to be true. And at that point, the Pharisees feel as though they have to say something. So overhearing, the Pharisees said, this one casts out demons by none other than Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Well, what was the incident then? Well, it was the healing of Jesus. It was the crowds going crazy. These are reasons to believe in Jesus. But the issue that Matthew takes up is the criticism that's offered against Jesus by the Pharisees, namely the Pharisees' rash claim. And I want us to use that as kind of a catchword in our thoughts this afternoon, a rash claim. Because the moral of the story as we come to the end of the gospel passage will be a warning about us making rash claims. It's a dangerous thing, particularly if you want to say that the work of God is actually the work of Satan. But Jesus talks about other rash claims as well. I wondered where I put my phone, and I was afraid I'd find out at this very moment with it ringing. I think it's in a backpack, and I'm sorry for the distraction. So the Pharisees make a rash claim that Jesus is doing this by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. And so we want to go and look at the rash claim and respond to it. Category number two in the outline, we've dealt with the incident. We come now, secondly, to the response to the rash claim incident. And we shall, in a few minutes, look at the lesson of the rash claim incident. Before we go from the incident to the response, I want you to notice in verse 25a what it says about Jesus. But knowing their thinking. 
Mark, in his rendition, simply says that Jesus called to them. But Matthew wants to um, highlight the fact that Jesus already knew what they were thinking. So even before discussing the Pharisees' ludicrous claim that Jesus is possessed by a devil and he's casting out demons um, by none other than Beelzebul, uh, Matthew says, he's also a mind reader. You gotta factor that in as well. That, your explanation doesn't account for the fact that he knows what you're thinking. So there's a fourth little incident on the way, and that is Jesus being a mind reader, but never mind being a mind reader. Well, now we come to the two responses that Jesus offers in verses 25 to 30. And I'll read the second paragraph now. Jesus' response to the Pharisees, the illogic of attributing the work of God to Satan. But knowing their thinking, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is a wasteland, and every city or household divided against itself will collapse. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How therefore will his kingdom stand? But if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, in whose name do your sons cast them out? On account of your saying this, these will be your judges. But if, as is the case, I expel demons by the Spirit of God, it follows that the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how is it possible for someone to break into the house of a strong man and steal his stuff without first having bound the strong man? Only then can he rob his house. Unless one is with me, he is against me. And unless one collects with me, he scatters. So here then is the response to the rash claim incident of the Pharisees, verses 25 and 30. And Jesus uses two metaphors. The first we see in verses 25b to 27a, and it's the metaphor of division. Jesus says, um, you don't win a war by attacking your own soldiers, uh, in effect. And so we have here this idea that if um, a kingdom is divided against itself, um, it's just going to fizzle up and disappear. Um, it makes absolutely no sense, says Jesus, for me to be casting out demons. Satan has taken possession of this person and said, this person is mine. I have his mouth closed and his eyes shut. Jesus rescues this man and takes him from the kingdom of the devil. And the Pharisees say, oh, well, it's by the devil that you did that. Um, it makes uh, no sense at all. It's like uh, Russia sending missiles against its own cities, or Ukraine in response sending um, HIMAR um, missiles against its own citizenry. It makes no sense. And Jesus says, if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided him against himself. How therefore will his kingdom stand? And Jesus is here telling us what we um, are inferring as we go along, that the kingdom of Satan is already, um, the writing is on the wall, because the kingdom of God has come. Jesus demonstrated this already in chapter 4 in the temptation when he outwitted Satan. And so Satan is a loser on the way out. But then Jesus turns his logic and he says, well, okay, well, wait a minute. There are uh, Jewish exorcists. Um, and I looked up Jewish exorcism this week and found that there were a few Jewish exorcists um, from before the time of Jesus. And this actually is one of the responses 
that Jews give to Jesus being an exorcist. Well, we have exorcisms in our own tradition. Uh, it doesn't mean that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, Elijah cast out demons, or Elijah um, uh, performed miracles, and he wasn't the Messiah. Elisha performed miracles, and he wasn't the Messiah. And besides, um, we have um, a couple of exorcists ourselves. And Jesus seems to acknowledge that it's possible, of course, for a child of Israel, um, a prophet or a man of God, a woman of God, to perform a miracle. And so he says, well, if I'm casting them out by Satan, and you believe that your own people practice exorcisms, in whose name are your own people doing it? Presumably God, and presumably God on my case. But if your own people are casting out demons in the name of Beelzebul, well, then let them be your judges. But if, in verse 28, and here comes the main point, but if I, as is the case, expel demons by the Spirit of God, it follows that the kingdom of God has come upon you. I put at the top of my uh, translation on page one, in the person and especially in the action of Jesus, the sovereign authority of God has been manifested among people. The kingdom is not a matter of pious hope or religious nostalgia. Jesus is saying, if I'm doing this, you are actually witnessing the fact that the kingdom has come upon you. And my friends, as we read this passage today, and as we reflect historically upon this true phenomenon, um, it is true that God has come into the world. God has revealed himself in Jesus Christ, and the miracles and the test and the works of Jesus and his words bear witness to the fact that he was the Son of God. So Jesus is saying, in effect, to the Pharisees, the moment of decision has come for you guys. And as we read it, we think, what too will I do with this Jesus? We have the options of Lewis. Uh, he's either a man on par with somebody who thinks he's a poached egg, because no wise teacher also says, hey, follow me because I'm God, or else he'd be the devil of hell, or else the son of God. The devil of hell isn't looking like a particularly worthy explanation. The poached egg option is off the table, and the son of God is the one that rises to the top. If indeed Jesus performed these miracles, I was interested to read and look this week at what uh, scholars, both Jewish and Christian, are saying about the miracles of Jesus. Uh, a friend of uh, Anik, and somebody whose view you wouldn't be surprised to hear say this, N.T. Wright says in his book, Jesus and the Victory of God, we must be clear that Jesus' contemporaries, both of those who became his followers and those who were determined not to become his followers, certainly regarded him as possessed of remarkable powers. A.E. Harvey, in his book, Jesus and the Constraints of History, says, the tradition of Jesus's miracles has too many unusual features to be conveniently ascribed to conventional legend mongering. Moreover, many of them contain details of precise reporting, which is quite unlikely, unlike the usual run of legends and is difficult to explain unless it derives from some historical recollection. And the Gospels themselves show a remarkable restraint in the narratives, 
which contrasts strangely with that delight in the miraculous for its own sake, which normally characterizes the growth of a legend. Let me just read one more quote because it's important. This is the bedrock of our faith. Chilton and Evans in the book, Authenticating the Activities of Jesus, say the following, any fair reading of the Gospels and other ancient sources, including Josephus, inexorably leads to the conclusion that Jesus was well known in his time as a healer and exorcist. The miracle stories are now treated seriously and are widely accepted by Jesus scholars as deriving from Jesus' ministry. Several specialized studies have appeared in recent years which conclude that Jesus did things that were viewed as miracles. We see this in our own passage. The Pharisees didn't say, oh, it's a trick. Um, look, um, his twin brother is hiding behind the bushes, and when you weren't looking, Jesus exchanged his twin brother for, uh, for, for uh, the guy who was blind and dumb. They don't deny that Jesus healed the man by allowing him to speak and by allowing him to see. Instead, they say he is performing miracles from the devil. And that is the thing to which Jesus responds. Um, I think that's incredibly telling, and I, I just want to share with you, those of you who might be on a bit more of a skeptical side, that um, you know, when, when, you look at, when you look at the four Gospels, you see historical particularities, and you see actually um, kind of tensions in the way that they're being recounted that indicate that these are eyewitness testimonies and that there isn't collusion between the Gospel writers. Sometimes they have the, the spunk to be able to differ with what they see reported by someone else and, and add details that you wouldn't expect. And if you want your strength to be built, as mine was this week, read some of those Jewish exorcism stories that can be found in the book of Tobit or um, in, the, in the Jewish book of wars. They're just, I mean, there's just a kind of an absurdity to them. They just, they just smack of legend rather than history. So we have the incident, we have the response, and then under the response, we have the metaphor of division. And secondly, Jesus mounts another argument that is in verse 29 alone, and that is, you don't break into the house of a muscle man unless you've already bound the muscle man. And Jesus is saying, by casting out demons, I'm showing my power over Satan. And my power is greater than the power with which he kept this man's eyes closed and his mouth shut. And then Jesus gives a maxim. Unless one is with me, he is against me. And unless one collects with me, he scatters. I've said something in the notes about the relationship between this maxim and another one that seems like a contradiction. And I want to leave that simply to you find the, to find in the notes. Because I want to draw attention to this idea that one collects or one scatters because it has implications for us. Jesus is saying there's no neutral ground. In other words, if you do something for the kingdom of God, you're helping to advance it. And if you decide simply to default, not to participate, then you're actually consciously doing something to hinder it. You're actually on the other side by your apathy. And so there is no middle ground. I sometimes chuckle when I hear parents say how they want to raise their children free from value judgments and other things. 
you know, I want to teach my child about Buddha and Muhammad and Jesus and let them make up their mind when they're older. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a noble idea, but you just can't do it. I feel like saying, how did you decide what language to teach them? Well, you're a native speaker of English. It's your tradition. You teach your children that tradition. And actually, they're in a better position to evaluate if they've owned a heritage. And then they can make a more intelligent decision later on. Now, that may sound a little bit surprising. I'm not suggesting that you encourage your children to wander from your faith, but all of us have a grounding. And Jesus' point here is there's no neutral ground. You're either for me or you're against me. And unless you're with me, actually, you're against me. So what are you doing? What are you doing to collect for the kingdom? And if there's not a conscious list in your mind, or you could come up with one if you weren't feeling on the spot like you might be, be assured, I hope, that you can find one. And if you can't come up with one, then you might have to think to yourself, golly, maybe not to have a list is actually to be helping out on the other side of the cause. I loved someone, I can't remember who it was, their life was described as being so active for God that there was panic uh, every time the person woke up. Satan would say to his demons, oh no, she's awake again, watch out guys. Uh, is this is just somebody who's just constantly committed to the kingdom and whatever they're doing, they're advancing the cause. Oh no, she's awake, watch out. So this leads finally to the lesson. And the lesson, the main one, is found in verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy people do will be forgiven. But the blasphemy of the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Whatever you do, says Jesus, do not blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. Oh, we'll, look at, we'll take a look at what that means, but before we do, there's another issue that might have struck you. Why can you blaspheme against the Son of Man, but not the Holy Spirit, if each is equally a member of the Trinity? Is Matthew implying that somehow Jesus is inferior here? And I think the point, and it's virtually the consensus of commentators, is that the reason why you could speak a word against the Son of Man and be forgiven was because at this point in Jesus' life, he was revealing his identity as the second person of the Trinity and the Son of God. He adopts the term Son of Man, which is pur purposely ambiguous in order to keep the crowd from getting ahead of his agenda for his own messiahship. So Jesus, in effect, is saying, it's understandable if at this point anyway, you don't understand who I am and you mistake me. But there's no mistaking the Holy Spirit. And if a person consciously attributes the work of God to the work of the Holy Spirit, um, you're in trouble. And that, in this case, is what the Pharisees did. Let's look just for a moment at a few definitions of the Holy Spirit about what it means to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit. And that's on uh, the, I think it's the third page, uh, the relevant issue, blasphemy against the Spirit. Tell me when you found it, Sandra, and then I'll know that, good, the average smart cookie in the congregation has found it, even though I didn't put um, page numbers on it, which I should have. Not a smart cookie from behind the microphone, maybe. Um, 
The second paragraph of, of Hagner, the only unforgivable sin is that of deliberately denying God in a fundamental way, one which goes against plain and obvious evidence. Such hard-heartedness is the result of one's own deliberate insensitivity and cuts one off from forgiveness. Hagner continues, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit includes the slander of the Son of Man. To oppose the Spirit is to oppose Jesus and his mission. But the blasphemy of the Son of Man need not, although it may, involve something quite so catastrophic as blasphemy of the Spirit. In the case of the Pharisees, the opposition to Jesus had unfortunately ended in the blasphemy of the Spirit. So my friends, the point that is most important to take, I, I, I want to say, is for any who are worried that they might have done this. And so for the worried, the very fact that you're worried about the problem means that your heart is still soft and you're inclined towards thinking well of God enough that you're probably not guilty. So if you, if you have the, the spiritual wherewithal to ask the question, uh, that's a very good sign uh, that you're not, you're not guilty or, um, or culpable. I have it on the last page before the uh, end notes at the top in bold. Any person who's genuinely worried about having committed the unforgivable sin against God by virtue of this concern can hardly be guilty of such blasphemy or denial. So that's a definition and a pastoral reflection under the third heading of the lesson of the rash claim of the Pharisees. Then we come to another lesson, and it comes in verses 33 to 37, where Jesus uses the metaphor of the tree and its fruit. And I think lying behind the, uh, the claim of Jesus in verses 33 to 37 is perhaps this thought about, well, I just spoke against the Holy Spirit. I mean, you know, we all can speak out of turn once in a while. What's the big deal? And that is what Jesus now seems to focus on, because in verse 33, and I read it from the translation on the first page of your handout, hey, because a tree is good, its fruit will also be good. And because a tree is bad, its fruit will also be bad. For by its fruit, the tree will be known. Oh, progeny of vipers, how can you, being evil, speak good things? For the mouth speaks what spews from the overflow of the heart. The good man expels good things that emanate from a good treasure, just as the evil man expels evil things that emanate from an evil treasure. And I say to you, and this comes from Matthew alone, I say to you that for every futile comment that people will make, think about this, for every futile comment that people will make, they will give account for its rendition on the day of judgment. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. I tried to find an easy way out of this in the commentaries. Because uh, as I read this, I thought of the number of times when, if you're like me, you've spoken out of turn. You know, you can, you can put on a, a, a face of good character most of the time. But the highlight here is that the person that you really are is revealed by what you say when you lose it. When the guard is down and you just sort of say what is really burning in your heart, Jesus says that's a pretty good indication about what your person is like. And as I thought about that, I became really very convicted myself and I, I suspect you will as well. And if, if 
if if that's true, then the Holy Spirit is is speaking to you as the Spirit was speaking to me this week. People have often told me that I convey more anger than I intend sometimes, and I I uh, I have to take that seriously. Um, there are times when dynamics between individuals can be like a, a sort of a constant crossing of purposes. There are people who just rub you the wrong way and no matter what you what you do or what you say or what you think they 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 can just be so different that it's a great source of aggravation to you and our patience is taxed and we say things that are lasting and damaging we're told that the tape recorder is running and that we will give account on the day of judgment for things said out of anger or otherwise. And relationships, as we all know, can be harmed by that one thing you said. Now that I've raised three children and they're all in their adulthood, I, I, I've got bad news for those of you who are parents or aspiring uh, parents or aunts or uncles. It's not all the good stuff you do. It's the one time that you blow it that is remembered. You know? And you live with that legacy of being that insensitive person who said that. And you want to say that's only like 99.9% .9 of the time was pretty good. What sticks in the mind is that other thing. So Jesus has a harsh lesson here for us. And it actually takes us back to the Sermon on the Mount about speaking the truth and about our motives, about that kind of go deep righteousness that Jesus is talking about. And so we find here what we found in the Sermon on the Mount that we run into this issue where we're confronted by our own sin to the point of saying, I am in deep trouble because of what I have said. And Jesus holds the bar high and doesn't let us off the hook. But at the same time, we know that God's grace prevails and that there is forgiveness of sins. So this is a time to repent of the times when we've flown off the hook. Times when that inner person, that nasty creature that, that lives inside, rises to the surface and takes over from the good guy or the good gal. And we need to uh, repent of that and be open to correcting in light of it. My friends, the lessons are as follows. Jesus is the Son of God. No one denied his miracles, his, his exorcisms. Um, and the alternative explanation makes no sense at all. So he's not a poached egg. He didn't do it by the devil. And he is the son of God. And the lesson would include that we dare not willfully and constantly defy God by saying, what is from God, I believe, is from Satan. And we need to watch what we say and confess those things that we say because the rash uh, comment incident began with the Pharisees and has come back to just pinch us in the cheek and say, wake up, you better do something about that. Bring that to the mercy and the grace of God because rash claims carry with them their danger. Let us pray. Gracious God, by your mercy, we believe that you have kept us from blaspheming against your spirit and pray that you would continue to do so. Keep us from the folly of unrepentant sin and willful resistance against your will.
so that the means by which we are forgiven isn't cut off, namely your grace, the work of your Holy Spirit. And forgive us, we pray, for the times when um, we have spoken ill of others. We confess that our natures are not what they should be, and we bring those to the cross confident in your forgiveness, knowing that you came not to condemn sinners, but that you might bring them life. And so as we repent of our sins, we want to do that with integrity and sincerity, and at the same time rejoice in the knowledge of forgiveness if we respond in faith to your work done for us on the cross. And these things we pray, giving you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.